Welcome to the Worker's Mic right here on 720 WGN, powered by the Midwest Coalition of Labor. My name is Ken Edwards. I am with the Midwest Coalition of Labor. Sitting to my left is Ed Maher with the International Union of Operating Engineers. Buongiorno, Ed. What's happening, Ken? Happy Sunday. (laughs) Happy Sunday to you. It feels like spring out here all of a sudden. How was Italy? Very nice. Did you ride ride a Vespa? I did not. I don't think they make uh, big boy Vespas. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> big boy sizes and a lot of things over there yeah that's a good point how you had a good time yeah yeah great time that's awesome i went to florida by the way yeah i saw a picture you caught a little fish look uh, you caught some bait. It, li- it looked little yeah yeah i know it was the camera it was much much bigger in person yeah i'm sure I'm so sure that so, so first of all i'm glad that you're back um not that i didn't have a blast with phil um Phil is yeah. Uh, thank you, Phil, yeah, for filling in. Can't, can't thank you enough. By the way, did a great um, job. And actually, Phil's the one that got the the guy from the teachers union to come on. That was a really interesting. Yeah, interview. yeah, it was really really cool. I don't I don't speak teacher, but I speak it a little bit more now. Right. You know, it's definitely a, it's a different world. And and speaking of different worlds, we have a couple of like different guests today. Uh-huh. Um, we have David Madland. Yeah, um, David Madland. He's from the Center for American Progress. It's a think tank. They put out a really great study this week about the impact of union representation on working class people across america and he also wrote really a book right he wrote this really really i just i downloaded it last night i started to read it uh-huh. really radical like everything that needs to change about labor unions policy in the united states so that is, this can be more inclusive and affect impact everybody everybody, everybody. basically he says his book solves the entire problem for the entire every the united states all of our problems will be solved by this guy's wealth book. inequality gone <laughs> yeah. yeah and then and then because uh, we have the writer's strike going right. on um we have a, a a wga um executive board member his name is john rogers and um he's going to tell us a little more about what it's all about with these writers yeah. and why every human being every air-breathing human being should be supporting these writers if you're human there would be get with them <laughs> yeah. yeah otherwise it's coming for you next right so we got a lot to talk about let's get to it so stay with us we'll be right back on the workers mic 720 wgn you're listening to the workers mic powered by the midwest coalition of labor and sponsored by megan financial premise health and voya financial all right welcome back everybody to the workers mic right here on 720 wgn uh, with Ed Maher and Ken Edwards. Now, in the, the initial segment, I mentioned a study that I had read, and uh, we're lucky to have one of the authors of that study on the phone with us today. Uh, his name is David Madland, and David is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Welcome. And he's also the author of Reunion, How Bold Labor Reforms Can Repair, Revitalize, and Reunite the United States. So, uh, welcome. Thanks for uh, coming on the show, David. Thanks very much for having me. So let's talk about the article first. Um, and, yeah, and, and, and before we do that, David, you are so you work for basically a think tank, correct? Yes. Center for American Progress, a uh, think tank, uh, it's been around for about twenty years. You would say it, it, if it had a polar opposite, what would the other think tank be? The Heritage Institute or uh, American Enterprise Institute. So those are yeah, largely those like co- right wing think tanks. Yeah, the old Koch brothers, money uh, funded think tanks. Right. So it's good to that there is a uh, a counterbalance to that, if you will. And you and you yourself, what's your background? My background, um, done. I worked for labor unions. I uh, worked for a member of Congress who was uh, chair of the labor committee when I was there, um, and worked on political campaigns. But I also have the academic side of PhD, um, and so I'm sort of a kind of a hybrid between. Uh, politics and union 
sort of work as well as the academic. There, um, there is a there is a Venn diagram that that has uh, some uh, all of that included, and you, you must fit right smack in the right. middle of that. And the Washington Post actually called you one of the nation's wisest labor scholars. That's pretty high praise. It's very kind of them. <laughs> so, sometimes happens. More often, they'll say bad things about me. But uh, that's all right. And the Washington Post, owned by that would be Jeff Bezos. That's I think, right. right. Yeah. And where did you go to school? Uh, I went to Berkeley for undergrad, and I uh, got my PhD at Georgetown. Nice. So what? Uh, online? Those are online schools. Georgetown. I think I've heard of that one. Yeah, they just give them to everyone. <laughs> you know, it's so, a nice thing that the kids have you can get online education nowadays and look look where you can wind up. So the study that you put together uh, that I came across the other day was uh, titled "Unions Build Wealth for the American Working Class." Um, and one of the first things that I saw in the study was a definition of working class. I mean, I always assumed that I grew up working class, but I uh, you know didn't know what it actually meant. So. Um, can you define working class, like how you define the American working class? Sure. In, in this study, you know, we define it as people without a four-year college degree. There's certainly other ways you could think about it, whether it's an income level or the type of, whether it's blue-collar work. But this is kind of a definition that lots of academics and sort of political people use, because there's often a, uh, a sort of a big difference in the sort of kind of income you can earn and the lifestyle you have if mm-hmm. you have a four-year degree versus uh, if you don't. And so, I mean, the the findings of this uh, quickly summarized would just be um, unions, the outcomes for union members in the working class versus non-union members in the working class are dramatically different. Unions are are extremely beneficial for that group. Could you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, so they're big. And as you were writing, the typical working class union household has about uh, 200,000 in wealth, and that's four times the typical wealth for a non-union uh, working-class household. So these wow. are big, big differences. And you're, and you're talking about what property? You know, uh, money in the bank. Uh, you know, your house, et cetera. Right? I mean, that's that's what you're talking All about. All of that. Yeah. So wealth is kind of the the, the it's add up everything that you've got that's positive. Your savings accounts. Right. Your house, your retirement accounts, your pension, subtract out anything you owe, yep. out anything you owe, and it's the sort of this, this net thing. It's kind of a lifetime sort of accumulation of everything you've been able to earn. It's not just what you got one year that you had a good year, you earned something. It's like a really what you got in the bank. Yeah, I, I think that goes along with, you know, the studies that say, you know, uh, most Americans are, are one catastrophic incident away from you know, bankruptcy or homelessness. Right. I think the study mentioned that one in three Americans still can't handle an unexpected expense of $400. Yeah. So, so what happened? So that's scary. That's sort of how that's, you know, that, that puts into sort of perspective that when you think you're living the paycheck to paycheck, it's because you don't have any wealth to rely on yet. When you're part of a union, it's, it's transformative and it's, it's transformative because, you know, probably there's lots of other studies that looked at the good things unions do like they have high, you have higher incomes, you have better benefits, you also have a more stable job. Mm-hmm. And this study really what it shows is that all of those add up to be so much greater because it's not just one thing unions do, they, they do all of this stuff, and that means a whole lot more financial security for you. And thinking about this in terms of wealth, I mean, we, we talk all the time about hourly pay and annual pay uh, being better under a union contract, but uh, a term that you use in the study, the union wealth effect. Um, I think it, it it makes me think about it in a different way because one of the points that you make in the study is children of union members earn more during their lifetime. So 
this is unions are creating a foundation for working class people that uh, benefits the next generation and the next generation. So you're you're really um, building a family uh, or building something like a strong foundation for your family to uh, to continue on for multiple generations. Yeah, you're hitting the nail on the, the head there, and that's what you know when you think of sort of typical person without a, a four year degree. That means they didn't necessarily, they probably didn't have a lot of family wealth. They didn't they didn't have sort of the, you know a fancy college degree and sort of the benefits that, that might bring. So how do they take care of their family? How do they sort of pass something on? Other people, whatever they they're, can pass on their estate or whatever fancy things they have. But for a typical person working, a union is sort of an essential way to do that because you set yourself up with some wealth, and that wealth can then provide all sorts of benefits for the next generation. And like your kids are healthier, like you know here in Chicago and around the midwest and i'm sure in other parts of the country you know you're seeing and 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 both ed and i come from the building trades david and and you're seeing you know we're opening doctor's offices and you know getting people in and they're healthier and their kids are healthier ed told me that union households you know members live longer right they're literally healthier so you know it's it's just yeah and these are you know these are the kinds of i think studies are getting a little bit more in into these kind of things of of because wealth, the other thing here is just wealth is so much more unequally distributed than income. It's, right. you know, like hundreds of times more unequally distributed. And so that means the life chances for people are so much different. But if you can build a little bit of a nest egg, like unions help you do, these have sort of benefits from so many facets of, of your life. That's, you talk about health and these kind of things are being more and more just studied. Or I you know, mentioned mobility and passing on advantages so your kids can then have the kind of advantages that someone who has a college degree has, for example. So that's one of the other findings from this study. The typical um, working class union household has almost as much, not quite, but almost as much wealth as the typical college-educated non-union household. So they're almost closing the gap with the college-educated. Wow. And i got to tell you, I think that you'll see, you'll see that shift over the next you know, 10 years, yeah. if not sooner, because we are pre- preaching, earn while you learn, come mm-hmm. to an apprentice program, don't come out with, with debt. And as these college degrees, in my humble opinion, become less and less useful, um, I think you're going to see a, a sea change in that. I want to switch gears, though, if you don't mind, to talk about your book. Um, I actually did download it last night, and I read the introduction. Um, it is, it's, it's radical. I mean, it's absolutely radical. So, you know, you talked about the fact that there needs to be a, a sea change here in America in terms of labor law, labor policy, et cetera. Can you just touch on a couple of, of those points? Sure. So my goal is most every worker should be covered by a union contract, by a collective bargaining agreement. So that means everyone can benefit from the, all of these things we've been talking about, the greater wealth, the ability to have your family have security and the like. And so then how do we achieve that mm-hmm. is sort of is what I really want my focus on. Right. And to me, there are a couple things you need to do. And the first is about getting far more workers to be members of the unions. And that's about giving workers stronger rights, things like the PRO Act, but it's also about really how you incentivize people to join unions so that we can have membership rates like some of the countries like in Sweden, for example. But we also then, I think, want to improve how we bargain so that we're covering far more workers. 
So that's when you come to the sectoral bargaining is what you called it, right? Exactly. Yeah, and explain what that means. What does that mean? Yeah, so most of our bargaining in the U.S. is worksite by worksite. Right. But when unions are really dense, like you think of the old auto industry, they had Mm -hmm. something close to sectoral bargaining where they covered kind of all of the workers in the industry and the gains sort of spread out from there. So everyone in in the shop got a good union contract. And... That means that the that the firms don't have don't want to don't need to fight unions so much because they they're going to pay the same rate kind of whether no matter what right exactly it also means which is sort of the that's you know one of the things that unions have been fighting for for a long time is similar pay for similar equal pay work. for equal work absolutely it's, and and you, 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 it's really hard to get that when you're bargaining just with an individual work site. If you can get to a broader level, right. and you know, you talk, you come from the trades. One of the things I talk about is prevailing wages are Absolutely. sort of one of the few things we have that are a little bit like what I want, but I want it on a much bigger scale. So do we. So in prevailing wage <laughs> law, when you're working on a, you know, doing construction on a government contract, yep. typically the firm has to pay at least the prevailing wage. Which, when unions are strong, that's the that's the union rate. Right. right. And so all of those workers. Are, benef- are, are benefiting, but also the union is, is benefiting because their wages aren't getting undercut. Your wages aren't getting undercut. That's right. And our, con- and our, and our, con- yeah, and our contractors are not getting undercut. Exactly. Right. And so you, your firms are succeeding and can compete. So you're saying to take that and take it to its neschological conclusion, which is you do it across a sector, right? Whether it's a service sector or, you know, manufacturing sector or whatever. So sectoral bargaining, that's that's number one. You also say, which is something that Ed and I have been saying since the day one of this show, that the labor policy and the labor, the penalties for breaking the law here in the United States are laughable. It's a joke, right? And that that needs to change. It's a crime. It's it's criminal, of course. Yes, Absolutely. We need real penalties for firms that violate the law. Otherwise, there's no disincentive for them to, you know, go on as they do. As you, you know, probably heard on your show before, these the, the penalties right now are laughably weak. That firms sometimes refer to these as quote, you know, their hunting licenses. It's just a permit that they have to post. Practically, there's no there's nothing nothing deterring them from all sorts of horrible union busting activities. And that needs to stop. But I'm, and, but I'm also for, we need to go well beyond that. Like, that is just not enough. It's not just enough to say you can't do this. We want to really encourage workers to get into unions. So you mentioned these apprenticeship training programs that yes. you all do, which yep. I think are, you know, one of the best things we've got going. You earn as you learn. That's right. But as you know, it's also a pipeline for people to get into your union. Yes. And so I want to ramp that up and things like that as well. So we're really incentivizing, encouraging people. And to in the process, you build a, build a more skilled workforce for the nation. And then we have, you know, there's greater productivity gains. So there's a bigger pie and we can get more of that bigger pie. So, I mean, one of the things that uh, you mentioned in your book from what Ken was telling me is that um, the political uh, arena here is someplace where workers are not winning. Um, you know, what we see is that unions make a huge difference no matter who you are. Uh, they will make your life better. Um, and yet we have a Republican Party that often nationally is pushing policies that are against unions and often against workers. And the Democratic Party, which, frankly, I think is just distracted from these kitchen table economic issues and focused on things that, you know, maybe fall outside of uh, Maslow's old hierarchy of needs. Um, so, I mean, what do you think needs to happen on the political front to uh, to kind of open the floodgates here? Well, I, I think you started to get it right. You know, labor issues have to become front and center. They can't 
we, we can't be distracted by all these sort of, sort of, you know, whether, you know, cultural issues that are dividing Americans. We all want to find how it makes work pay and put that front and center. And there's starting to be a shift. It's nowhere near enough. But there's been some big movements that I think, you know, are important to note. So the public opinion right now on labor unions is more popular. Labor unions are more popular than they've been almost ever. Right. Approval yeah. ratings around 70%. Yeah. So Union, the public yeah. yeah, no question about there. it. And, and the unions the won 80% of their elections last year. You, I'm going mean, to cut you off, but and we, we don't have a, a lot of time left. But you said something, you know, that, uh, that I think is something that Ed and I have been saying, that when you take out the, you know, the gun issue, uh, the gender issue, the, you know, w- whatever it is, the woke issue, blah, 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 all this kind of nonsense that, like you said, is dividing this country and, and doing a very good job of dividing us, by the way. And you take that out and say, hey, how about this worker amendment on the ballot? So here in Illinois, we passed the Workers' Rights Amendment. Every single county. In the, in, thank you. Thank that you, was a big you. deal. Every single county in this state, deep, deep red Illinois, voted in favor of the Workers' Rights Amendment, yeah. right? So moving everything off to the side, like you said, David, focusing on labor and workers' rights, that has to be the center of attention. And what Bernie Sanders is doing, I think, is important, right? Holding some uh, CEOs accountable and having hearings. It, it needs to get labor and workers' rights has to get into the vernacular of the American people and, and politics and culture, you know, and radio shows and television shows and, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your book and what you're doing, I think, is is important in that regard. You know, I would encourage everybody to go out and Google this, buy this guy's book because, you know, it's it's absolutely fantastic. And, and, and we, that, we, that, book, kind of that book again is, is and called... I, of course, agree. Like, we got to make union issues the center of sort of political debate. Agreed. Yeah, and the book, again, is called Reunion, How Bold Labor Reforms Can Repair, Revitalize, and Reunite the United States. And we've been talking to David Madland, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. David, I know you've got to run. Thank you so much again for making some time for us this morning. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. We'll be right back, right here on the Workers' Mic, 720 WGN. You're listening to The Worker's Mic, powered by the Midwest Coalition of Labor and sponsored by Megan Financial, Premise Health, and Voya Financial. Welcome back, everyone, to The Worker's Mic right here on 720 WGN. I'm Ken. This is Ed. We are extremely happy to have with us today John Rogers from the Writers Guild. John, welcome. Thank you very much for having me on, gentlemen. Oh, thanks for coming. Yeah, there's a, it's a, it's certainly timely. Um, and and you are just your title is you're on the board of the Writers Guild of America. Uh, I'm on the board of directors for the Writers Guild of America West. Uh, I do the legacy issues and the history. There's a Writers Guild of America West and a Writers Guild of America East. Uh, we are both on strike. Okay. okay, and two different locals or two different unions under two different unions. Uh, we're 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 a guild. I mean, yeah. technically, I mean, we're, we're, we follow. Look, both of these both of these organizations are are ninety something years old. So there's a lot of artifact structure. Uh, but we are we always work in, in unison. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay, and so, you're on strike. Yeah, you're on strike. It's a big you're deal. On strike, sir. I was out on the out on the lines yesterday. And what is uh, tell us briefly? Uh, let's go back real real quick. So, what's your background? You you're a writer. Obviously, uh, I am a screenwriter. I started as a stand-up comedian, and back when they gave every heavyset white guy a sitcom back in the '90s, I did that for a second and a half, uh, and then um, wound up getting more into the writing side of it, and have been a, a continually employed screenwriter for like 25 years now, between both features and television. That's super cool, and the, and I understand that you wrote Transformers. 
I was one of the writers. Those big blockbusters very rarely have one person on them, but I was one You're of the modest. Yeah, don't be don't be modest, John. I heard you wrote the whole thing. And I heard, I heard you yeah, actually hired yeah. Me- I heard you hired Megan Fox for it too, by the way. Good good choice. No, yes, that was uh, the power that a the power that a screenwriter exerts over a massive blockbuster film is really intimate. Uh, we barely <laughs> even talked to the director. We barely even let him in the pub. Well, 20, 25 year old Ed thanks you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so tell us uh, so tell us what what is this strike about? Uh, the strike is about the fact that we have come to a point where the streaming model, which has been growing over the last 10 years, has disrupted our both our compensation and our working conditions to an untenable degree. And so we tend to do address this with the companies. Uh, the companies, as you may have seen in the press, not only... Uh, not only didn't give us what we want, they completely refused to respond and did not counter to many of our very high priority issues. And so, unfortunately, we've come to the point where uh, we are forced to use the power of the union. And thanks to a ninety-eight um, percent uh, wow. favor by the um, by the union, with the highest turnout we've had in the union strike authorization vote. Yeah. Unfortunately, the board uh, had to make a decision to call strike last Monday. So the so the companies literally won't respond to some of your proposals. Like they just are yeah. are, bl- are blank. Yeah, just like, no, no counter. We're trying to be transparent, so we release a, um, because we realize it's the only way to win this sort of thing, is to be transparent, because right. when you see the behavior of the companies, even people who weren't involved in the issues can see the bad behavior on the part of the companies. Right. So we released, uh, you can find it online, a document outlining our asks, and they are all very reasonable, and the company's responses. And as you can see on about half of them, it did not respond, and no counter offered. Yeah, they just refused to engage. I mean, things went with the switch from, I mean, the last time that you were on strike, streaming was just um, just emerging. People heard about it. You know, Netflix was getting away from being the DVD mailing company and into streaming, but people didn't really understand it. And now um, the, the world has changed. And um, I mean, streaming, when you're a writer, you make money when your show airs, you make money when it's syndicated, you know, back when you used to have reruns. Um, but all that's changed now with the streaming era. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, and look, the point of the last strike was streaming is that we saw this coming and nobody else did, and we right. decided to strike, and, and we went up 100 days. Uh, and the, the, the company saw the streaming is experimental, streaming is promotional, we'll never make a dime in this. And literally the day the strike ended, Hulu started. Wow. Um, so, yeah, they, they, had the, they, had the, they had the bullet in the chamber. Yeah, they were ready to go. Of course. And so, luckily for us, we established that precedent, but now over uh, actually. Almost exactly 50% of the business now is uh, producing in streaming and distributing through streaming. So, yes. Uh, and that has changed because um, the contract, the writer's bill contract, is a living document and is an, it is amended as we go. And so, every new distribution model that comes along, we have to write rules for that distribution model. Right. So, the rule for reuse of our work, residuals, um, which are similar to office royalties, are not exactly them for complicated, fascinating historical reasons I could get into, but I don't think anybody really wants to spend that in a minute. Thank you. Um, you know, we... <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, uh, we get um, really a percentage of the profits in some places, and we get a flat fee in other places, and then in streaming, um, we get a fee uh, that is based on the original sales price that is dependent on the actual size of the streamer. Okay. And it is a flat fee, and as a result, we have no um, we have no share in the success of the product. 
Wow. So you so you so you you guys are writing yeah, you, yeah, so you're writing it and the product is, yeah, you're writing it. It's hugely successful. It's 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 garnering more subscriptions to, you know, so and so service. Eventually, by the way, they're throwing ads in there now. Yeah. And and so it's yeah. your product that's being produced. You literally are the ones that came up with the idea and wrote the product and you're not sharing in the revenue of that product. Yeah. What exactly. are the what are the and, what and are the business models in a small that? way because I'm sorry. What was that? Well, is there any other business model where the inventor of the product doesn't actually share in the revenue of the product? No. Well, I mean, we we do share. That is what residuals are. But they make sure that we share in a way that is not representative of the actual success. I mean, you're being treated like manufacturing. It's like a manufacturing thing. You're yeah. there to just churn out scripts. They sell them, get what they can for you, and you get paid your rate for churning out scripts. Yeah, and this is part of the other problem. The residual is the back end. That's not technically back end. Back end is ownership, which you only get when you're very high up. Um, the residual is the, is the rough TV and, network and film equivalent of author's royalties, like I said, very similar to that. Yeah. Uh, they get them, we get them, but we get a very denigrated part of them, and our numbers don't go up in streaming if they are more successful, which is a problem. Uh-huh. So the guy who writes Stranger Things, which is a giant international hit, it's the exact same check as somebody who writes a show you've never heard of. That's fascinating. Yes, yeah, uh, and so one of our uh, young men that work for our uh, our YouTube channel is wearing a Stranger Things sweatshirt right now. So funny, yeah. funny, funny. You should say that. Well, we, so, we definitely go get both. So what happened though is is because of the nature of the streaming model, when shows are on broadcast or even on cable, which is where I came up. Um, the, the production cycle was linked to the, the distribution cycle. Um, we made the television shows, we wrote, we came up with the ideas, we rewrote during mm-hmm. production, we did post and editing, we were on set for the shooting, right. and because we overlapped with production. Mm-hmm. But now the streaming companies are like, well, you know what, let's try to, let's try to stretch these out. We're only making eight, ten episodes, so why don't we get out the scripts first, that way we can budget. And that's kind of the way to seduce here. They go like, oh, well, we get all 10 scripts first. That way we can budget more effectively and get more on the screen. The show will look better. And this is how we can wind up here. It's like, oh, yeah, that does sound great, doesn't it? But you're going to bring us back to be on set. Right. No, we're not going to bring you back to be on set. Oh, but, but post, like editing, is actually part of our job. So you're going to pay us the same as you pay us to be around for that. No, no, none of you are going to be around for that. Now it seems Only the showrunner. And even he is not going to get paid what he usually gets paid for doing the job that he did, absolutely the same job he did five years ago. So I think... And that's it. They've slowly peeled apart the production cycle into pieces so they can eat away at us at every different stage of the piece. So in in turning you guys into, you know, basically gig workers, right? Turning you into the Uber drivers of Hollywood. Well, let me ask you something, John. That's 100% what they're trying to do. And how many showrunners, how many successful showrunners and producers started out as writers? Because right now it sounds like writers are being put in a spot where you're there to write, you have no place in the rest of it, so you have no way to learn the rest of the industry. Like, I would imagine a lot of successful showrunners, producers, uh, started out as writers, figured out set design, music, all of that stuff. And uh, and now they're just being cut out, so you're almost uh, shutting off the pipeline to kind of create talent uh, in-house in the entertainment industry. You know, we make this... Look, almost every showrunner started as a baby writer. Yeah. Almost every showrunner works their way up to the system. Occasionally they go outside and they get a film writer or a playwright who has a lot... It really, But we always pair those people with a showrunner because 
we have, look, a television show is a is a is a hundred and two hundred million dollar business with weekly deadlines. Like you just don't drop somebody who doesn't know what they're doing into a job like that with two hundred employees, uh, several of whom are very good looking and sometimes don't want to come out of their trailer. You know, and you know there are transfer issues, there are location issues. Like this is an enormous business. So let me uh, let me ask let me ask you this. Running a show. Let me let me ask you this. Because I really do want to touch on this, I think at least either put it to rest or, or talk about it. But the article that I read said that um, that the studios or the employers, I should say, the companies, and these companies, by the way, I read that some of the CEO salaries they're, they're sickening. They're absolutely they're, it's on it's absolutely unbelievable. Almost a billion dollars for like six people. But anyway, I, I just have to ask you this question, John. They won't even talk about AI, like dead silence no. about AI, right? Well, well, not, uh, worse than a silence, a mealy-mouth uh, agreement, which makes us actually more worried. What is um, that? Because, which is, which is, what is it? Because what happened is we said, you know, we have these rules for AI. And I, and I was on the AI working group for the Writers Guild. It was, a, it was led by a guy, a very prescient guy named Derek Hughes, who early in the process said, okay, we need to tackle this now. Yes, right. right. We got ahead of it, which is why we're one of the first unions out of the gate with an AI policy in our negotiation that other people are looking at and saying, you know, this is great work. That's thanks to Derek Hughes. Um, but I was one of the researchers on that group. And, you know, we said, look, we want to limit it in these ways. And the studios have said, well, no, we don't want to cut ourselves off from being able to explore this right. technology artistically. <laughs> so let's have a meeting once a year to talk about it. Interesting. And I'm sure that meeting will be how awesome AI is. Yeah. Uh, uh, will generally be it. Um, their their big their big their big comeback for a lot of the stuff we asked for was well let's have a meeting about it it's like right. we don't want to do more free work we're yeah. having a negotiation yeah, we're, about free work we're here right the now meeting with you is work yeah, yeah that's right yeah yeah that's why that's why it's called negotiations right? so we don't need, we don't need meetings let's let's negotiate this so I, I I had read that a couple of the items that the WGA is concerned about is not only uh, trying to keep AI from uh, writing source material that gets developed into, um, you know, into screenplays and things like that, but also to prevent AI from being used to uh, fix scripts. So a writer could come in with an idea and they'd say, hey, we like part of it. We're going to have AI work on the rest. Um, so, so what it sounds like to me is, and coming from construction, if you have um, technological advancement coming in and you give that up, you give human work to technology, you never get it back. So what you're doing right yeah. now is fighting to keep human beings in the entertainment industry. I think it's, it's a very complicated issue because, first of all, the technology can't actually do what they think it can do. Right. And what we're a lot of what we're trying to do is keeping boneheaded executives from thinking this is a great idea and driving things into the ground because someone's going to think, "Oh, let's do this." And, yeah. And and things will be ruined. Well, I mean, but, uh, but it's also the fact that you know. Um, we're trying to keep copyright is a very complicated thing. And mm-hmm. these machines are plagiarism machines. These machines have been trained sure. on the copywritten material, our work without, right. our, without our consent, by the way, um, violating our copyright. And you, if you get into copyright with AI, it's interesting because the original guys who developed it, when they, they were asked like, Oh, did you guys get permission before you scanned the whole internet and all that copywritten material? It very much went from this is the future to well we're not responsible for how it's used. You use like they realized they kind of screwed up. Yeah, and there have been several judgments recently that said you cannot 
copyright material created by an AI because of several of those issues. That's not a work of, of human imagination or human art. Interesting. But yeah, I mean, I don't think a, a lot of this is, I don't think AI is going to replace human workers. But what, no. what we're trying to do is basically keep AI from being used as shortcuts to undermine jobs yeah. that will be done better by humans anyway, but hard to explain to them why, because they, like, look, the thing you were saying earlier, right? where writers are no longer trained to become showrunners, this is going to cause a problem because you're going to run out of showrunners or the showrunners you get will be poorly trained and their shows will go over budget, which is stuff that happens. Yeah. These things are always trainers. We tell them that every year. And one of the things where you come on the board when they bring you on as a Writers Guild member on the board, it's always great because the first thing they go is, well, why don't we just tell them they're like they're eating their seed corn? They they don't, and you see the the, the glaze in the old board right. member's eyes. Sure, it's like you tell them every year, they don't care. They they used to not care because they they really didn't want to give up the point. The new group of executives, and I do not think we can underestimate this. The new group of executives are fully of the vulture capital hedge yeah. fund financialization model of Hollywood, yeah. where if it does not boost the stock, if what's coming out of your mouth doesn't boost the stock price for the next quarter, right. they do not hear it. Yeah, cutthroat cut cut capitalism is what our previous guest called it, and I, I think you're right. And we're we're racing to the bottom here, but let me let's let's, let's end on a positive note. How has the support been for your strike? Uh, the sports been, like we said, universal. But the yeah. guild itself was completely united. With a, with a, we always get a few holdouts. Yep. Um, but the tone here within the industry and outside the industry, I'll address both. Uh, within the industry, uh, a complete sea change from 2007 2008. Right. Uh, the Teamsters. We had a big meeting at the Spine Auditorium the other day. Uh, after we declared the strike, we had several thousand guild members there yep. to go over the negotiations and explain why we had to do this. Um, and we had every labor union in Hollywood represented in that room. That's the awesome. Hollywood laborers union, the people who maintained the right. lot, right. were there. Yeah. The cementers and plasters were there. Yeah. The teamsters were there. The directors and actors were there. Iatsi was there. We've never had this. That's and they great. all got up to speak. That's great. And and, um, and what about from the know, public? What, because the public right yeah. now has a very favorable view of unions. And I think, you know, at least yeah. from what I'm reading, very supportive of what you guys are doing. Uh, like, how's that been? Yeah, I mean, you've... You've got this sort of usual thing where people have been so steeped in well, the corporation is always right when they just don't understand that you're allowed to say no. Yeah. You know, we've got a little bit of that in the fringe. But I think that's the other thing is it was really hard to explain in 2007, 2008 to the general public. Sure. Well, you know, there's copyright issues and streaming. It's like I don't understand either of those words. But you can absolutely go to the public now that has watched this happen in every business in America. Right. And they've had their family members suffer from this. Hey, uh, the bosses are making giant profits and not paying the workers. You don't have to sell anyone in America on that. Right. Uh, we've been talking with um, John Rogers. He is an executive board member for the WGA Writers West. Guild of America. Yep, Writers Guild of America. And, hey, John, we appreciate your being on. This is really, really timely and really important, and we wish you all the uh, best. Guys, I appreciate you having us on. I appreciate the work you're doing. It's, right. it, you know, we're not going to have a future unless people start looking up to the fact we have to do this together. Absolutely. Right. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. We'll Thank be, you, guys. Yeah, we'll be right back uh, right here on 720 WGN, the Workers' Mic. You're listening to The Worker's Mic, powered by the Midwest Coalition of Labor and sponsored by Megan Financial, Premise Health, and Voya Financial. 
Welcome back, everyone, to the Workers' Mic right here on 720 WGN. That was super, super interesting. That was. I could have I could have listened to a lot more. And actually, I think on the uh, the broadcast, we're going to have a little bit extra to that interview that's going to be on the YouTube channel. So once you're done listening to the show on WGN this morning, head on over to YouTube yep. and look up the Workers' Mic, and you can hear uh, the rest of uh, what John Rogers from the WGA had to say. Yeah, it's hard to get all this into a short period of time. There's, There's so of, much to yeah, it. A lot of complicated issues, but... You know, at the end of the day, what I took away was they're really, really fighting for not just the middle class. They're, they're fighting for jobs. Yeah. Right? They're fighting for the future. Yeah. Uh, you know, if we're going to be replaced by robots, right? <laughs> right. I mean, this is coming from a guy that wrote Transformers. I know. See, I mean, uh, we, he's... He knows all about bad AI, you what could say. They, yeah, just make so we it, need make good it, AI to it, fight the bad AI. John, if you're listening still, just get make a, a good robot to fight the bad robot. If I remember correctly, sometimes they hide as meteors, so you got to look closely for the meteors? good AI. Did you ever see Transformers? Um, no. You should watch it. It's it's really, really I heard great. I heard it was transformative. It was a very well-written movie. Was <laughs> And John's interview was you know, it transformed my opinion. Transformative indeed. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, pretty soon if this uh, continues on, uh, there won't be any more TV and we're going to have to open our doors and go outside. And read. Yeah, maybe, like, walk around, play ride ca- bikes, Play cards again. Get exercise. Right. Talk to friends, family. Uh, it's going to be real. Ugh. That's going to, like, actually sit, sit next to your wife and talk to her. Like, oh, whew. Boring. Yeah, and there's no TV to watch. So you know how many divorces will it be? Like yeah. instead of like, oh, hey, honey, let's not talk and binge watch TV for the next six hours. They have to sit there and look at each other. Newspaper subscriptions are going to go up, so guys <laughs> can just sit there and pretend they're reading the paper. Uh, you and I might be replaced by robots. <laughs> they could probably do it better than me. Yeah, well, me too. <laughs> Well, thanks, everybody, so much. Uh, it was a great show, great guest. Thanks for sticking with us. And we'll be back here with more Workers' Mike uh, next week right here on 720 WGN. The preceding episode of The Workers' Mike was powered by the Midwest Coalition of Labor and sponsored by Megan Financial, Premise Health, and Voya Financial. For additional information and podcasts of The Workers' Mike, visit WGNRadio.com.